The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number eight, Captain America by Steve Englehart, part one. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Harris, and in today's episode, I'm joined by the Classic Comics Forum's resident Captain America expert, The Captain, to discuss what is widely considered to be the most important and influential Captain America run of all time, issues number 153 to 186 by writer Steve Englehart. In the summer of 1972, new Marvel writer Steve Englehart was tasked by Editor-in-Chief Roy Thomas with revising the increasingly out-of-touch and unpopular series Captain America. Within just a few short issues, Englehart had turned Captain America into one of Marvel's top-selling books, and he went on to craft a run that reinterpreted Captain America for a new generation and permanently redefined what it meant to be Captain America. And ironically, he brought Captain America into modern times by returning the character to its original roots as an overtly political character. In this first part of our two-part discussion of Steve Englehart's run on Captain America, the Captain and I discuss issues 153 through 168, where Englehart cleared up the mess left by previous creators and began laying the groundwork for what would become the most infamous and important Captain America storyline of all time. But first, as always, the Captain and I discuss his experiences in history as a comic book fan and collector. So we're going to jump right into that conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Uh, so, as always, my first question is, uh, what was the first comic book you ever read? Oh, first comic book I ever read would have been probably Star Wars number one. Um, from Marvel. My grandmother from Memphis came and visited us every summer. She bought me the black polybagged uh, three-pack reprint of issues one through three. Um, she brought me a little something, so I was probably five or six years old when I got that, so that would have been the first, probably the first three comics I read were those three. Well, that uh, sounds like a pretty good place to start. Yeah, yeah. It, it, in, the, in the late 70s, I had a lot of Marvel licensed properties, uh, so people would give me the Star Wars books, the Godzilla books, Shogun Warriors, Micronauts, but, but none of the superhero stuff at that point. So um, that was really my, my introduction to the, the Marvel universe, as it were, where the, the licensed properties that they had. So other than the comics we read to prepare for this podcast, what was the last comic you read? Probably the last comic I read would have been, oh, the, the new things I bought last week. So... Aquaman and the uh, last part of the most recent Serenity miniseries, Captain America, Sam Wilson 21. So just some newer stuff from last week. Still sticking with the new stuff. Wow, you're a, you're a rare bird these days. Well, oddly, my, my whole list has fallen. I think I have six, seven books that I get on a regular basis now, and a couple of them are sort of habit buys. Uh, right now, both the Captain America books are habit buys rather than actual interest buys. But there are some things that come out now and then that I'm interested in that I pick up. But uh, 
Yeah, I went from a high of probably 50 books a month down like it's probably about six or seven at this point. So uh, who's a character that you love? <laughs> um, the, the easiest answer is Captain America. Um, so that's uh, been one of the ones that over my whole time of collecting comics I've really been drawn to. I'm not really sure um, when that started, probably not until the Wade Garney run um, for the end of the original, so probably in the 430 to 455 range. Um, but I've gone back and picked up actually all the issues of the series. Um, but, but Captain America has just been one that I've always been drawn to. And what character do you hate? <laughs> um I probably have an irrational hatred for Wolverine. Uh, my first college roommate was literally obsessed with Wolverine. Um, posters and comic books and everything, and just even sort of adopted Wolverine's attitude um, as he went about his regular life. And I just got so burned out on that character, uh, particularly because I was a huge X-Men fan at the time. And it basically at one point just turned into... Wolverine and the rest of the guys with the X gene, and I just got completely fed up with them. That sounds like a completely rational uh, hatred for Wolverine. I'm not a fan either. Um, I didn't have the the uh, crazy roommate, but I think we've all seen that guy. Um, there's nothing worse than when a character's popularity starts driving storylines. Oh, absolutely, and you know you see it. I mean. My, my dislike for Wolverine has faded in time. Uh, I stopped reading the X-Books by and large. Now I'm pretty focused on disliking the, um, what I call the gimmick characters, your Deadpools, your Harley Quinns, Gwenpool, just all of that sort of uh, characters. I don't understand the popularity of it all. They just... Why people like them escapes me, but they seem to be everywhere constantly. So who is a creator that you think is underrated? That's a great question. And then I thought about this coming into this and, you know, I'm not really, I don't know if I have a really good answer for that. Um, you know, I know like guys like Jerry Conway sometimes get a bad rap, but I like his work um, on Amazing Spider-Man and, you know, other guys. Um, who maybe don't get as much credit. I always liked Ron Friend. Um, always liked his stuff and just didn't, didn't think that he ever got maybe, I don't want to say a claim, but maybe the recognition that he should have. Um, so probably those two. Who's a creator do you think is overrated? Well, I know most everybody else has answered Grant Morrison, so I really don't want to go that direction with um, again. Um, even though I love his work, um, I do think at times that Warren Ellis is overrated. Um, he seems to write the same stories no matter what book he's on. And you know, primarily like when he was working on Astonishing X-Men, he wasn't really writing X-Men stories. He was kind of writing his usual science stories and shoving the X-Men characters into that. Um, another one, who similar name, but Garth Ennis. I like Garth Ennis, but when you've read one of his books, you've pretty much read all of them. It's going to be hyper-violent. It's going to have a lot of swearing. It's going to be just kind of over-the-top, in-your-face, sort of like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, and it's good, but I don't necessarily think it's always as great 
as people make it out to be. I agree. There's a whole wave of British creators about that same time period that I am not a huge fan of. Um, and for the most part, I think some of them are good, but I think they're pretty much all overrated. And that includes uh, Morrison and Ellis and Ennis and particularly Mark Millar. Mm. So to me, they're all sort of, they're all kind of the same, cut from the same cloth, the cynical uh, kind of snarky, some variation of, you know, taking the piss out of the superhero genre. And a little bit of that goes a long way for me. So um, I think I think Ennis is a very good writer, but like you said, once you've read one of his books, you've pretty much read all of it. He, he doesn't really try anything new. Speaking of trying anything new, if you had um, one title to take um, on a desert island with you, what series or story or title would you bring? I would take Fables, um, particularly the first 75 issues of it, which are a complete story and... You know, I've read that probably four or five times through. I usually do it about once a year. Um, the art is so, excuse me, the art is so detailed, and the uh, the story is just so rich. And the characters, you know, he takes the classic storybook characters and does something new with them. And I think every time I read it, I find something different that I hadn't seen before or hadn't thought of before as I've gone through it. Um, the, the second half of the series, after issue 75, it's still good. It's not great. Um, sometimes I reread it when I'm going through. Other times I don't. Uh, my most recent attempt to get through that, I think I got up to about issue 120, and I was like, you know what? I don't feel like finishing it right now. I just kind of tucked it away back on the bookcase. And it's been there for probably three months that I haven't gone back and finished the last 30 issues. So that would be my uh, my pick. That's an interesting pick. I mean, for me, I love the first 75 issues of Fables. Like you say, Um, I thought it went spectacularly off the rails almost immediately in the crossover with Jack of Fables. And I forget what the literals, was it? Uh, It it was. And that's actually, that's the... I, I've collected that in trades. That's the one trade that I don't have. And I've heard it's just so bad and it doesn't really tie into anything else that you can really skip it and you don't miss anything from the story before or the story after. So I'll be honest, I've never read that, but I've heard really bad things about it, which you're actually confirming. It's terrible. It's it's like it's hard to describe how bad it is, especially compared to how good everything had been up to that point. Yeah, skipping it is highly recommended. Um, but for me, it, like it really put a sour taste in my mouth for the rest of the series because um, you know, like you said, the stuff after the first seventy-five issues, some of it's good, but it never really. It's to me, it seemed like the story was over with seventy-five, and so it's kind of just a little episodic. Um, no real direction for the rest of the series to me. Um, I ended up I kept reading up to around 120 but then i just sort of dumped everything after issue 75 and just kept the first 75 issues yeah and that's that's i think the curse of something that's popular um when they just don't know when to stop Uh, my wife and i right now are watching friends from the beginning and you can see that point in the series where it's like it was really good really good great and then there's that couple episode arc where you just see 
okay, this this show's lost its way completely, or a TV show like Supernatural. They should have ended that after season five. They'd told a complete story. They'd wrapped it up nicely, and now we're on season twelve, and I've completely lost interest in it because it's just meandering now for the sake of hey, people are still watching this, let's keep making it. So, yeah, I, I think definitely going back to you know, someone we were just talking about, Garth Ennis, you know, he had a vision for Preacher, and he said, this is how many issues I'm doing, and this is the story I'm telling. Boom. He ended it, and that was it. He didn't try to milk it beyond that. He told his story and quit, so I gave him a lot of respect for that. Final question. If you could create any one dream book... Any character, any company, any title, and any creators, doesn't matter whether they're alive or dead, what series would you want to see? Just sticking with you know, my favorite characters, just thinking about Captain America, you know, I really would have loved to have seen what Kirby could have done outside of the 1960s Marvel you know, method of Stan sends them you know, a few lines, Jack draws it, and then Stan fills in the dialogue. I really would have liked to have seen Jack just be able to work with someone who kind of gave him more of a vision and then he wasn't trying to create everything on his own um, and then having somebody fill in words afterwards. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing, you know, kind of a segue here. I love what Engelhart did with that. So maybe teaming an Engelhart up with a Kirby. Um, or Engelhart, even up with uh, you know, John Romita, whose artwork on the book, I think, probably rivals Kirby's, I mean, at least in my opinion. So maybe combining those kind of guys, or if you're going to take a, a more modern approach, say a Brubaker, and teaming him up with a Romita or a Kirby on that book. I'm a big fan of Brubaker, um, and I'm a big fan of Brubaker's Captain America, which I guess not everybody on the classic forums is. Uh, I would love to see him work with someone like Kirby, though. I think that would be would have been fantastic. Uh, but yes, that was a perfect segue into today's topic, and that is Captain America number 153 to 186, the Steve Englehart era of Captain America. Now, in um, interviews, Steve Englehart has basically explained that you know he was brand new to Marvel, had only done a couple of things at that time, and Roy came to him and gave him Captain America because Captain America was kind of floundering. Uh, it had been passed around to a few different writers. None of them really had a clear direction. And there wasn't really any reason, as Engelhardt says, for the book to even still exist at this point. Uh, because, you know, it's early 70s. And with um, the political situation in Vietnam, you know, patriotic hero is just not as popular as it used to be. And the writers could not figure out a way to make him relevant and interesting to the viewers of the day. So Captain America was basically on the chopping block. They handed it over to Englehart. And according to both Englehart and Roy Thomas, when Englehart took over, he wasn't that familiar yet with Marvel continuity. So to get him started, Roy Thomas suggested, why don't you answer the question of who the Captain America of the 1950s was? Now, this is a question that fans have been having for a little while okay. because when Stan brought Cap back in Avengers number four, he said that he had been frozen in an iceberg since the end of World War II. However, Marvel 
as Atlas had published three issues of a Captain America series in the 1950s, leading a lot of fans to wonder how those issues fit into continuity. So that was the question that Steve Englehart uh, was given when he first took over the book with issue 153. And the result was a four-issue storyline that immediately established Englehart as a force to be reckoned with and became an instant classic series. What did you think of um, that first arc, the cap of the 1950s? You know, I, I really liked it, and I enjoyed how you know, Engelhart came in, and at the beginning of 153, you know, he, re- he really did what he could to wrap up some storylines that were kind of hanging out there, um, the whole Nick Fury, Countess, Steve, love triangle, which, you know, again, it just, that really wasn't something that the book needed, and it was just kind of there as... Uh, you know, some, some space filler, um, and he has sharing quick shields so that they can go be together, and then they take off, and here's Sam left on his own for the first time to kind of be the hero in, in New York City, and then he gets attacked, and you're wondering, okay, who's attacking? Why is Captain Bucky attacking Sam? And that whole storyline, it's like, it's great because he knows it's not Cap, but you know, he's going to get to the bottom of who is this guy who's coming at him and is so angry and, and you know, racist, as much as racist as they can be um, at that time. You know, they, they were still at a point where they couldn't really use harsh language, so uh, but still calling them, you know, colored and boy. And you know, they really drove home the fact that these guys were not the original and that they're whole mindset was warped. I just loved how he kind of developed that and, and why they were that way um, because of the, the, the chemicals that they ingested. So, um, yeah, that, that first storyline, he really comes in and, and immediately improves, like what you said, was just a completely floundering book that I've read the issues that led up to it once, I think, and it's nothing I'm ever going to revisit most likely. Yeah, the issues before this are completely forgettable they have some cool covers i'll give them that there's some cool covers but you know if anyone remembers them it's it's mainly because uh there was a weird kingpin storyline in it where that involved kingpin's wife and that's Mm -hmm. stories kind of become important retroactively but for the most part those issues didn't make any sense there's a whole long-running subplot that we're going to talk about here because it eventually becomes important uh in Englehart's run where uh, Cap had, in his secret identity as Steve Rogers, become a member of the New York City police force. Um, and that just a bizarre decision that never really worked in the book at all. Um, but when Englehart took over, a couple things he did right off. I, I love, you know, the contrast. He immediately injects some not-so-subtle political commentary into the book with the contrast of the 1950s values uh, of the characters versus the modern 1970s values. But he also, 154 is one of my favorite issues of his run because Captain America and Sharon have gone off to wherever they are, Bahamas or whatever, and they're uh, for frolicking on the beach. And we see all of two pages of them in the entire book. The whole issue is Falcon, Falcon's solo book. And this is the first time where, you know, on the masthead it says Captain America and the Falcon. And up to that point, he was basically just a sidekick, but this is the first time where you really feel like he's a partner 
and he's just as important as Captain America is in the series. And I really like that issue a lot. Yeah, and it's funny that that issue where you see Sam on his own and he's just as capable as Steve was, um, that comes into play later on when Steve comes back and he gets the, the super strength. Um, because you start to see some, some friction there between the two of them. So I think that, that Engelhart did a really nice job here. It's like, okay, you know, Sam has been, to your point, the sidekick in this book, and now let's give him a moment to shine because I'm setting something up down the road, which I, I think was a great hallmark of, of his run, is that there was always something else building towards down the road, you know, if not next issue, five issues, you're going to see the payoff of this. Now, at the end of this uh, story, you know, we discover in a, in a very Roy Thomas sequence where he manages to fit in actual pages from some of the um, Captain America comics from the 50s. You know, we discover that these were people who were idolized Captain America and Bucky, and they had their, you know, voices and features, um, surgically altered and then they had their own version of the super soldier serum that they took only they got it wrong and it, and it made them eventually go crazy and they've been in deep freeze ever since the 50s ever since the government realized they were nuts um, one twist here that i that i thought was kind of funny particularly in retrospect knowing what engelhart's going to do later is that they're let out by a right winger who's complaining that Nixon is being too soft, uh, which I thought was like Nixon wasn't extreme enough for this guy. So he decided to let the crazy Captain America out. Just knowing what we know about the uh, Secret Empire story coming up much later, I, I found that uh, to be kind of funny. But also, again, right off the bat, Engelhart's injecting some political commentary into the series. Yeah, and it, and it made sense. I mean, you, you had a you had a character in, in Captain America who was, you know, facing Captain America one. He's punching Hitler in the jaw. You don't get much more political than that. This is a character that begs to have a political storyline crafted around him, uh, not you know fighting the collector, not fighting the characters that didn't really fit the book. I mean. There's a reason why the Red Skull keeps popping up because, you know, from a political standpoint, you know, you've got a Nazi and this is Steve's eternal enemy. So it made sense that Steve was bringing that into the book, um, but really updating it. And, okay, we're not going to just have a, an endless parade of Red Skull stories, but let's take on something that's actually going on today and work that into the book to make it relevant. Um, because, again, with you know Steve Rogers in Captain America, it, he was a product of the '40s, and he just wasn't connecting with with that audience. So it was a brilliant move on Engelhardt's part to to bring in something that people who were maybe more politically minded or active would look at the book and go, "Man, look what, what look what this guy's putting into to Captain America," and it's a way to to cause, you know, create interest in it. Yeah, I agree completely. I feel like Captain America as a series and as a character flounders when he is not addressing political issues of the time. Uh, when is if he's just a regular costumed guy fighting random costume villains, he becomes kind of goofy and loses his power. I think he's always better when he is put into political situations. 
Now, they can be metaphorical, like um, Mark Grunewald, for instance, much later, did a lot of things that weren't explicitly addressing the current political climate at the time, but were sort of dancing around it. And he still got a lot of interesting messages out, but you have to have some sort of political connection or else Captain, there's just no point to Captain America. And I think that's the problem the book had before this is they didn't want to get political um, or didn't know what, what angle to take on it. And so it was just um, villain of the month and that might work for Spider-Man or something, but it doesn't work for Captain America. Agreed. So at the end of the storyline, one, one of the best parts about the story is at the end, the two Captain America fight and, you know, the real one wins, but he's he does a lot of soul searching because he's basically realized, and this is driven home um, pretty heavily in the story, that the other Captain America and Bucky weren't evil. They had the, he, they had the same ideals as our Cap. Um, it's just something in the process went wrong. You know, they didn't have the Vita rays, so they went crazy. But they started from the same place, and this what happened to them could just as easily happen to Cap. And it's really interesting on a character level, but also, again, sort of as political commentary. Basically, good intentions aren't enough. The, to me, that was the message, is that, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, so just because people start in a good place doesn't mean they end up in a good place. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at the, you look at the the Bucky um, in that in that story. You know, he, here's a guy who he idolizes Cap, and he finds another guy who idolizes Cap, and they start you know down down this path. And it's like, well, if he'd idolized someone else, if he'd gotten some different advice or different direction, where where would he have wound up? So it, it was kind of a story of, you know, the, the, the role models that you're following can, can certainly lead you astray. So you need to be careful in who you're picking as your role model and, and being able to discern between you know, good role models and bad ones. And it actually leads in right into the next arc because thematically I found the story in issues 157 to 159 – to be very similar. This is where Engelhart pretty much ties up all the rest of the loose ends from the previous storylines. There's uh, this mysterious crime boss who's blowing things up, and there's a red herring where uh, Cap starts to think that it might actually be the police commissioner. But it turns out that it's Captain America's former partner in the police force, and he is doing this basically not because he's a villain, but he's do, perpetrating all these crimes and sending these bombs to try and bring awareness to like how underfunded the police force is. And he's trying to use it as a way to, in a weird way to make the city safer. So I thought that from a, you know, the moral of the story, the standpoint thematically is very similar in this arc as the previous one where we had someone that's not really a villain was coming at it. Again, another sort of reflection of Steve. It's Steve's partner from the force um, same ideals, but ended up going down the wrong path and chose the wrong way to to try and accomplish his aims. Yeah, and it's a good counterpoint to if you go back to even Steve's origin, where here's this scrawny kid who wants nothing more than to, to serve in the military, and it's that desire and that drive that, that puts him on the path he is. And so, you know, you see these other characters, you know, the I guess it's the cowled commander is the uh, the alter ego of his partner. You know, they're they're 
they think they're doing the right thing and, and they have their best intentions at heart, but ultimately it's just how they're going about doing it is is completely wrong and that's what causes the problem. Um, you know, as you said earlier, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That, that's exactly where this guy is at also. Um, and, you know, from a standpoint of, I thought it was a little bit too easy and, and maybe I'm a little harsher on it because, you know, it's kind of saying, you know, Englehart's kind of saying, well, you know, we've got all these corrupt cops and you know, the guy who's trying to fair out the corruption is corrupt and he's another corrupt cop and it just, I don't know if he intended to pick a bone with the police or not. Um, maybe I just read it differently, but it seemed like he wasn't real thrilled with police departments as a whole. Um, but again, I could be completely off base on that. Well, it did strike me at least uh, as being a, an unexpected twist for that character. I mean, that character was the upstanding partner throughout the series before Englehart came on. And even in the earlier issues, it was like, he was getting a bum rap. He had been suspended um, because he was being investigated. But, you know, he was sort of trying to prove his innocence. It turned out he wasn't innocent. But all, but it seemed like a bit of a heel turn. I mean, it worked dramatically because I wasn't expecting him to be the bad guy. But it kind of didn't work for me on a character level. Uh, it seemed a little too convenient way to tie things up at the expense of a character who up to that point had been shown as a good guy. Yeah, no, I agree with that. There were a couple other things that happened in this um, storyline that are important. Uh, the first issue in this arc, 157, was actually scripted by Steve Gerber over an Englehart plot. And according to Englehart, it was Gerber who added the Adman personality to the new villain called the Viper, uh, who is a, an advertising guy, kind of like you know Don Draper, and speaks in all these... Um, slogans like uh, television slogans and um, he's kind of annoying frankly but he's going to become important later on and even that ad man persona that steve gerber gave him here becomes a key plot point not too long in the future that is going to end up driving most of Engelhart's main storylines so while i'm not a huge fan of the original viper i do find over the course of these next issues that Englehart does a lot more with him than I would first have guessed based on how kind of goofy he is to start. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the concept of the character was fine. I just think Gerber went a little bit too far. I mean, it was, you know, all the slogans. It's like you, you could get it where it was maybe one, maybe two, but it was every sentence. It was everything the guy said. And at that point, you're, you're basically saying you're, you're making him a cartoon at that point. And just doesn't work if you want him to be a serious character and if you want him to be seen as a serious threat to Steve, um, having him just be completely off the wall, spouting out these catchphrases that he's cribbed from all kinds of other ads, um, that really works against him. But he is redeemed later on, as it were, as a character when, when kind of Engelhart takes him back under um, and Berber doesn't really have that influence anymore. And the other thing that happens in, in this issue, uh, this storyline, I should say, that's important is Steve gains super strength. He, he gets uh, injected with some of Viper's poison. It has a chemical reaction with the super soldier serum, and he gains super strength. 
Now, according to Englehart, this was editorial man editorially mandated. They went to him and said, you know, Cap's kind of boring. We want to give him some super strength. I think um, it was a bad decision, but Englehart ends up making a lot of hay out of it in terms of drama because it's not long before sparks start to fly between him and Falcon, uh, where Falcon feels kind of second rate now that Cap has superpowers. Yeah, I agree. It was it was one of those things where you, you could see that it was a, a higher-up decision to, to juice the book, as it were. And it didn't really make sense. I mean, the, the appeal of Cap is that he is a, a peak human. Um, he, he doesn't have superpowers. And really, to, to give him this, um, I'm not sure if it was done... Um, you know, because they were they were looking at doing something else with him, or if it was just, hey, here's Cap now with super strength, and maybe we can push him into another direction um, and have him take on some some heavier weights. But it just it it doesn't work for me either. So after the end of this uh, storyline, we get Englehart's first like one and done issue. It's one sixty where he introduces Solar. Um, I don't really have much to say about this issue. I thought I think Solar is kind of a stupid villain. I'm just not a fan. Again, Englehart gets some some drama out of the new super strength and how Falcon's reacting to it. The most interesting thing to me in this issue is there's kind of uh, Solar's origin is a little bit vague about exactly how he gets his powers. He's like off in the desert. And he just starts absorbing sunlight. And uh, in the letter column for 165, someone wrote in to ask what was going on. And they obliquely state that Solar actually got his superpowers by uh, eating peyote. (laughs) So I guess that's why they didn't show it in the comic, because they, like, couldn't. But, uh, yeah, Solar apparently just got, like, super high on peyote on the desert and came back with superpowers. Yeah, this is this is an issue that just doesn't doesn't work for me. Um, the villain is bad. To your point, he's got powers that they don't even explain where they come from until five issues later. Um, the best part of it is that you see the bigger split happening between both Sam and Steve, as well as with Steve and Sharon. Um, you know, she's left Shield. She's decided she wants to be with him. But at the end of the issue, she has left him as well, kind of leaving him pretty much alone as, as Sam goes back to Harlem and to Layla and Sharon goes off the parts on that. And that leads right into the next two-parter where we get the sudden shock return of Peggy Carter tying up a loose plot line from way back in Tales of Suspense number 77. Now, I mean, this is several months into this, so Englehart very well may have been doing his research at this point. To me, this just struck me, and I'm this I'm spitballing here. I have no reason to believe this is true. Just struck me as a Roy Thomas thing. I, again, I, I have no evidence of that. It just felt very much like, oh, there's this loose end from, you know, 90 issues ago. Why don't we go ahead and write a story explaining it? Yeah, it, it, it's got his fingerprints all over it as well, uh, without, without being able to confirm that. But it, it's really nothing that... You know, needed to be brought back up. He could have just left well enough alone at that point. Um, so I think that's kind of one of the things, uh, and, and for all the wonderful things that Roy Thomas has done for comics, um, his insistence on uh, dragging up minute past events and making a bigger deal out of them, 
um, and his obsession with continuity. And, and trust me, I love continuity as much as the next guy. Um, it just, it's really kind of jarring for the book at this point. Yeah, I mean, uh, but again, Engelhardt does some interesting things with what he's kind of given here. Peggy Carr's return is, end up, is going to end up being a major running plot line here where she doesn't realize, you know, basically emotionally she doesn't kind of understand that 20 years has passed. So she's still in love with Steve. He doesn't have the heart or the balls to tell him, to tell her that it was it's over 20 years ago. And neither she, he, nor Sharon ever get around to telling Peggy that they're involved with each other. And this causes all sorts of melodrama and soul searching on Steve's part and like hurt feelings for over the next 15 issues um, to the point where it kind of started annoying me eventually. And I felt like Steve is like feeling like crap because he's leading her on and he, you know, she, she deserves to hear the truth and he's totally right. But I really felt like this was Sharon's responsibility because when he and Sharon got together, he had no idea that Sharon was Peggy's sister, but Sharon knew the whole time, right? So it's like Cap wasn't hiding anything from anybody, but Sharon was sort of secretly running around behind her sister's back without telling anybody, without ever even telling Steve, you know, what happened to the girl that he loved during the war. I felt like this was Sharon's responsibility to step up and make things right, and of course, she didn't. Yeah, I felt that this was sort of the replacement from the earlier the, the tales of suspense and some of the earlier Captain America issues, where he was always you know upset about you know Bucky's death is my responsibility, and and he'd kind of gotten over that at this point, and so this was sort of the the cross that they gave him to bear was oh you know here's the woman that I loved for like five minutes back in World War Two, and she's back and I'm in love with her sister. It's, it, it was so soap opera-esque and really it was could have been solved with one conversation. Okay, look, you've aged, I haven't. Your younger sister's hot. I'm going with her. See you later. We wouldn't have had the 15 issues of this melodrama that they left us with. Yeah, I mean, I might not have phrased it quite like that, but uh, I completely agree. Like, this is a conversation they should have had right up front. I did, and I did appreciate uh, the appearance of Dr. Faustus. I'm a big fan of Dr. Faustus. And I also appreciated the fact that at the end of the issue, they're like, well, he's an evil supervillain that's trying to kill everyone, but damned if he isn't like the best psychiatrist in the world because he actually did solve Peggy's mental issues. <laughs> which no one else yeah. has been able to do. So I kind of like that. Yeah, I've, I've always liked Dr. Faustus. Um, he's just another one of those characters where, look, he's a big, fat guy, and he's not physically imposing, so he's going to beat you with his brain. And for myself, I'm not the most athletic guy in the world, so for me, it was always outlets like chess and games where that's how I beat people was I could outthink you but I wasn't going to beat you down and that's I think why I was always drawn to Faustus was he just was a brain and he you know he devised these schemes and some of them are so over the top but that's what makes it great about your brainy villains is they're going to come up with these Rube Goldberg schemes to defeat the, the, the hero and you know, somehow they always get down to the, the last 
loop and then the ball falls off the track. So moving on to the next issue, 163 um, is another sort of one-off. This is uh, a really interesting issue for a few reasons. First of all, we get the the Serpent Squad appears here. We get Viper back and we get Cobra and Viper's brother Eel. And I don't, I mean, I'm not a science guy, but I didn't think an eel was actually a serpent, but it doesn't matter. And they get mixed up with Captain America again and they lose again. But over the course of this issue, a few different things happen that are kind of important. Firstly, the Viper sets into, into motion a plan to discredit Captain America by calling some of his evil cronies on Wall Street and starting a negative ad campaign against him. Now, this is going to become kind of the heart of Englehart's entire run um, in a few issues, but it's also, it feels very, very modern, and partially because this concept has since been swiped by all sorts of other comic book writers for different storylines. Uh, you know, from the Legend storyline at DC to you name it. This, uh, like, uh, in Kurt Busiek's Avengers, there was a similar thing where they were being discredited. What did you think about that development? It, o- it only takes place over a couple panels here. It's just the seeds of it. But uh, but it's a pr- for me, it's a pretty important moment, both in Englehart's run, but also just in sort of the direction of comics in general. Well, I mean, I think, I think it's brilliant. I, mean, I, I really liked... The, the thought process here. I mean, here's this guy about the Viper who, you know, he's used to selling things. And he even makes a comment, you know, well, they, they sold the president through the media, um, obviously referring to Nixon. And you know, here he's like, well, if we can do it for, you know, the power of good, let's do it in reverse. Let's tear a guy down with it. Um, and he makes some really choice um, comments in there. He refers to the, the public as the great unwashed. Um, and that he says, you know, that the majority of the public only knows what they read in the papers and see on TV. I mean, it's a very, it's a very cynical view of the American people is that, look, they will believe whatever you throw in front of them. They're not going to, they're not going to go and research it. They're not going to go learn anymore on their own. If they see it on TV, if they read it in the paper, well, it's got to be true. You know, and we've moved today to, you know, well, if it's on the Internet, it's got to be true. Um, so it's, it's, it's really ahead of its time, to be honest with you. It, uh, it, re- it really was. And one thing that was very much of the time is the, the issue story, which involves a, a conscious, conscientious objector um, and Vietnam veteran by the name of Dave Cox. The Serpent Squad end up capturing him and torturing him briefly to try and get information about where Captain America is. And he refuses to fight back. And there's there's a debate among the characters about, you know, the idea of peace versus violence and whether anything can really be accomplished using violence. And it felt very topical for the time period. It's interesting in a later letter column, Engelhart uh, mentioned that he himself was a conscientious objector who served uh, in the army and was um, given a honorable discharge because he was a conscientious objector. So this is this obviously was very close to Engelhart, and it was a very sort of timely uh, political story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I took, I, I looked at the way that that they handled Dave, and well, you know, again, there, there's you know, certainly 
viable reasons for being a conscientious objector, you know, and maybe you, know, you are that way, you have come back from war and you're missing an arm and, and you don't believe in war anymore, and that's fine. Um, but I thought the fact that he's getting the crap beat out of him and he's just basically sitting there taking it, it's like there's a difference between being a conscientious objector and not, you know, basically defending yourself. And I thought that was a little bit, a little bit, it didn't ring true to me, I guess, is where I'm trying to go with that, is that you're telling me that this guy now just will roll over and let anything happen to him uh, because he's not going to fight. And I get that, I guess, but it just, it, it seemed to be a very extreme version of conscientious objector. Yes, I agree. One final note for 163 and the Serpent Squad. We're going to see them again later. They become important at the end of Engelhardt's run. But they're also the inspiration for Margunwald's uh, Serpent Society, which is one of my favorite groups of uh, supervillains. And I just love the Serpent Society issues in, in Grunwald's run. So even though the Serpent Squad isn't nearly as interesting as the Serpent Society is later, I'm, I personally was very happy to see them here. Yeah, they... Uh... You know, they, they were certainly interesting and, and as a forerunner to that later group, which, um, you know, really the, the, the tie there was, was Cobra. Um, I guess both Eel, at least Eel was dead at that point, I believe, and Viper was no longer uh, part of that. Uh, but then when he starts, Grunwald starts creating all these oddball snake-themed villains with their various abilities. It's like, man, that was just pure, almost pure 60s stand stuff coming out at that point. Yeah, I love the, the different character interplay between the different members of this. Like, there's issues where you'd have 10, 12 pages and it was just Serpent Society people, like, infighting and scheming and talking, and I didn't miss Captain America at all during those sections. I was like, yeah, let's get a whole book about these guys. Yeah, that, that was a, that wasn't, I mean, the Grunewald issues were, were good. You know, certainly, I wouldn't count them as classics in the run, but, you know, when, when you've got compelling villains like that, I mean, it's a watered-down version of the Flash's rogues, but you know, I could read an entire book of just the rogues, and if Flash showed up, well, that'd be fine. But if not, I'm cool with those other guys, you know, scheming and fighting and, and, and plotting amongst themselves. So then we move on to 164. Now, 164 is sort of a standalone, although right at the end, it ties in with the storyline that follows. Um, it's unusual for, right off the bat, all the issues up to this point, we haven't even mentioned this point, but... Everything up to the, to here has been drawn by penciler Sal Buscema, and I am lukewarm on Sal. I think he's very solid. He's a very good storyteller. I like it when he's inked by other people, uh, which he is here. And basically, you know, by the '80s, he was inking himself on um, Spectacular Spider-Man for like ten years. And I cannot look at those issues at all. Like they just physically make me ill. I can't stand that art style. So for me, Sal is just sort of a neither here nor there artist. He's replaced just for this issue by Alan Weiss, who also co-plotted this issue. And boy, the shift in artistic tone from Busema to Al Weiss was extremely jarring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sal, to your point, it's, he's, he's a solid number four starter in the rotation. He's not going to wow you, but he's going to give you good innings, I guess. Um, and, but this book is just, 
Yeah, too too much of a too much of a shift for my liking. I did find the story actually to be really cool. This is so in this issue, what happens is the Falcon gets word from a friend of his that's in prison that something horrible is happening. So Cap and the Falcon go to the prison and discover it's a trap. There's this woman named Nightshade who has turned all of the inmates into werewolves. And she turns Falcon into a werewolf, and but Captain America beats him because of his new super strength. And at the end, um, it turns out that she was actually being funded by Yellowclaw, of all people. And then she and all of her werewolves jump off the wall to commit suicide. I found the characterization of Nightshade to be really interesting, where Cap is basically like, she's wearing the skimpy, supposed-to-be-sexy outfit, and Cap is kind of like, she's just like a goofy immature girl playing at being a supervillain and it really like there's a the scene where they jump off the building of their deaths and she's kind of like almost she seems almost crazed in a sort of internet celebrity sort of way you know like she seems like she's and i realize this is 40 years too early for that but the sort of thing where she's just looking to make the headlines uh even if it means dying yeah, well, I think they reveal later on that she is a teenager. She's just a very um, intelligent, scientifically advanced teenager. So when when they, I think they add that down the road, looking back, it makes more sense uh, that she's just basically, yeah, she is just basically a little kid playing at something and probably mixed up in, you know, I mean, if you're mixed up with the yellow claw, you're definitely going down the path you shouldn't be going down. So, you know, she's just looking for money to, to fund whatever it is she's doing. Um, and here she's hooked up with, you know, the, the yellow menace from the 50s. There's two other things in this issue I wanted to mention. Um, one is that this story is the inspiration for the infamous Mark Grunewald story, Cap Wolf where Nightshade returns and turns Captain America into a werewolf. It ran um, from Captain America 402 to 407 and uh, is widely, I think, considered to be one of the worst Captain America stories ever, but but it's so insanely weird that it's got kind of a cult following to it. Yeah, it's it's one of those things you read once to say that you've read it, and then you just gotta tuck it back in the long box, shove it back in the corner, and you just try to get as much mental bleach as you can to get rid of it. <laughs> yes. The other thing is, so the art by Alan Weiss is really moody and, and intricate. It's sort of like a, almost like a cross between Barry Windsor Smith and Gene Colan. Um, I, I thought it was really cool, except, and I don't know if this jumped out to you too. I don't know what the F was going on with Nick Fury's costume when S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up at the end. Cause he's wearing this, fur vest with like a bandolier covered with knives and he looks like he just ate his way out of Sasquatch and I I turned the page and I was just like you know he, he basically looks like Marvel's version of Frankenstein's monster um I just laughed out loud when I saw that design did, did that jump out to you as well oh I I saw that and I'm thinking to myself, okay, there's got to be a rational explanation for this. But then you get to the beginning of the next issue and they've got him back in his normal clothes. It's like, okay, who effed up? 
who did not communicate which direction this was supposed to go, or did Weiss just decide to go off on his own tangent here? And I'm going to do something completely oddball with Fury that you know no one's going to question. I, I yeah, it's completely bizarre. Yeah, I, I've got to think that Weiss was just completely off the reservation there, and Buscema was just wasn't having any of it because I noticed that too. When I started the next issue, I was like, where's that crazy costume? But it's not there. Fury's just wearing a regular shield outfit at the beginning of the next issue. Speaking of the next issue, so we got the rest of this arc here. It's 165 to 167. It's um, versus the Yellow Claw. I This, for me, with the exception of a story we're going to talk about right at the end, this, I think, is Engelhart's weakest storyline. It really doesn't work for me. It's, I don't find it very interesting. There's a lot of sort of manufactured drama, which in his defense he was picking up from previous writers, where Cap and Nick Fury are butting heads, so they're both like going after the Yellow Claw on their own instead of teaming up. The handling of Yellow Claw is, is kind of um, problematic in terms of you know racial sensitivity. Uh, which I found interesting considering how well Engelhart had been doing portraying the Falcon in the African-American community. But when it comes to the Chinese community, he was a little bit out to lunch here. And I don't know, there's just a lot of stuff that didn't interesting interest me. You know, um, mummies bore me, for instance. And I thought the ending in 167 where the niece turns evil because she's got the evil Pharaoh spirit in her and then whatever. Like it, this whole storyline just didn't do anything for me at all. No, th- this, this storyline is, is almost like Engelhart had been given scripts from the time before him. And it's like, well, you know, I can take a few months off and just kind of run these through because it, it just smacked of somebody else writing it. I mean, we're talking about giant spiders and, scorpions and yeah mummies and possessed nieces who've been kept in suspended animation and it's like it it didn't tie into the rest of his run at all it was like either i found this somewhere else or somebody dared me to write something so completely off tone from everything else i'm doing and i'm going to give them this because the thing was they didn't do anything with yellow claw after he came back, if this had been kind of his reintroduction to the Marvel universe and, well, we're going to kind of fit him in and then work him into something else. I could have seen that, but he comes in and you have this weird story. And then at the end he's gone again and well, okay, what was the point of this? Um, outside of the, the kind of the few subplots where now that Steve's back in New York and he's starting to see these ads, about him, which you know, the Viper and his friends are running. Them. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, the subplots were definitely more interesting than the main plot, and they felt better written. Like, like you say, this some in, a lot of this doesn't even feel like Engelhart is writing it, but there are parts where you can see Engelhart, and it's none of it's the main plot. There's the subplot with the Viper's advertising comes back up, and then there's some really good stuff with uh, personal drama between with Steve sort of agonizing over this and between him and Falcon and between Falcon and Layla, there's one scene where it's implied uh, very carefully that Falcon and Layla have just finished having sex. I thought that was pretty adult and something Engelhart does has done consistently throughout his career is 
even in code approved books, slipped in some adult stuff. Um, so there's a lot of like good touches in the fringes, but the main story was just completely blah. Yeah. Um, and you know, they, they, he picks up the, the thread of, of Peggy trying to get back to Steve. And so she goes to Harlem, which kind of will fi- fuel some storylines going forward now that she's moved out of Virginia in her parents' house and she's kind of out in the world now. Yeah. But overall, even with the little touches he was adding in, you know, it, it, this is just kind of a waste of space, to be honest. Uh, so that brings us to 168. I only want to talk about this briefly because this is the one issue that Englehart was not involved with. It's actually a fill-in by Roy Thomas. And according to Thomas, at one point, much earlier, it had been announced that Roy was going to be writing Captain America full-time, but he never did it. Before he was taken off the book, though, he had already finished one issue, and it's this issue 168. So when they needed a fill-in, um, I don't know if this is when Englehart was moving across country, but they decided to publish 168. And, uh, oh, I know, I know why they did this. Uh, it says actually in the issue that they put this issue in here so Englehart could have time to write the new book he's launching, which in the advertisement here is called Son of Fu Manchu. Of course, we know it as Master of Kung Fu. They obviously changed the title. So while Englehart was was making up Shang-Chi, Roy put in this issue, and it's it's a solid issue, um, mostly important because it introduces the new Baron Zemo. It's called a phoenix in this issue, and he supposedly dies at the end, but he'd be brought back much later and become a much more important character in the Marvel Universe than the original Baron Zemo ever was. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a good issue, um, but, you know, it doesn't advance any of the story, uh, which you kind of figured it wouldn't. Um, you know, I honestly would have rather seen this issue expanded to maybe another one and cut that Yellow Claw story short by a month. And that would have been a little bit better use of the space. But, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, it's kind of there again solid uh, but nothing really memorable at least at the time so that brings us to the beginning of steve Englehart's most famous storyline which we will get into next episode thanks very much for listening to this episode of the classic comics forum podcast Next episode, the captain and I will discuss the second half of Steve Englehart's legendary run on Captain America, issues 169 through 186, which include the Secret Empire storyline, as well as the follow-up, Man Without a Country. So join us next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, visit us online at classiccomics.org to join in the conversation. <laughs>